Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Utah is the only state in the U.S. to enact a law that requires someone who is engaged in bioprospecting to notify the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands before removing certain microorganisms, plants, or fungi from state land. Bioprospecting is the search for and collection of biological material, usually microbes, that could prove either economically useful or in environmental protection efforts. For example, if extreme algae living in Great Salt Lake can make a biofuel, without impacting the ecosystem. It can be harnessed in the laboratory. Since research may turn those algae into a profitable fuel, the law lays the groundwork for Utah to benefit from profits made off the research. Westminster's Great Salt Lake Institute helped draft the legislation. Bonnie Baxter, professor of biology at Westminster College and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute, joins us to discuss this law and new management strategies for Great Salt Lake. A number of us in the state got together and formed a committee uh, to put together legislation that that became the Bioprospecting Act. It was introduced by Senator Lyle Hilliard um, last year. And the impetus for this was that a number of us were working on um, microbes from extreme areas in the state. By extreme, I mean extreme environments um, from glaciers or from cryptobiotic soil or desert varnish, or uh, in my case, from Great Salt Lake. Um, We were working on these things, and we realized that lots of other researchers were interested in Utah's extreme environments. And we wondered if there was a way to um, sort of keep some of this research in the state, or at least its development for economic potential. This, the, the concept of bioprospecting, maybe I should explain that a little bit. Um, around the world, people go into environments, and most people are familiar with the scenario of um, collecting plants in the rainforest and looking for natural products that might be useful as medicines. Um, in that case, sometimes you have to cut down the plant or harvest the fruit or the seeds. In the case of microorganisms, they're reproducing so quickly that they are a renewable resource. So we used to get the the cancer drug Taxol from cutting down 200-year-old yew trees in the Pacific Northwest, but then we found microbes that could produce the same compounds. Um, and that makes the production of those compounds really cheap. Um, and you don't hurt the environment because the microbes are constantly renewing. So we found some interesting microbes in Great Salt Lake that might might be producing something that could be useful uh, for biofuels and alternative energy sources like hydrogen. So we've been very interested in the algae that's growing um, at these extreme salinities because sometimes when life has to exist at the edge, like it does in in the north arm of Great Salt Lake um, in particular, it has to invent energy strategies. And and we think that those are good candidates then to look for for secrets for things like that. And so with this Bioprospecting Act, what are the parts of it that protect the resources more? Right. So is it, does it make it more exploitive? So we really don't expect the behavior of scientists who are working on these things 
to change dramatically. You know, scooping a little bit of water or sand, um, going back to the laboratory and cultivating the organisms out of that. That's usually what it looks like. So we don't really expect an impact on any of these environments. But what we do now expect with the Bioprospecting Act is that the people who are sampling on state lands in Utah will have to register with the state and say where they sampled. This helps the state know where people are on state lands, and it also helps in case there is technology that comes out of um, one of these experiments, they, they would be expected to give Utah credit. Biofuels are the most exciting prospect for scientists right now. But Baxter says the microbes in the north arm of the lake that color the water pink are promising too. They have these carotenoid pigments in them, which um, a lot of people are interested in as nutritionals because they're antioxidants. Um, so that's a possibility, and also using those compounds as sunscreens. We, we've been really looking hard at why these organisms are so resistant to UV light, and we think that they have very active DNA repair processes. So so that's kind of cool. They have enzymes that fix their damage to DNA um, and at a higher rate than our enzymes work. So, so they're doing DNA repair better. They're fixing any damage they get. Um, but these pigments are working much like skin pigmentation works in humans. People who are less pigmented are more likely to get skin cancer. Um, so melanin pigmentation protects us from skin cancer, and that's why um, the peoples who um, evolved around the equator and, and stayed in those areas, there was selection for, um, for darker skin colors. So we see organisms that live their life in high UV light, they tend to be pigmented. It just can't be a mistake that they're using them to shield UV light. So um, we have connected that to DNA damage if we can we can modify them in the lab so that they have less pigmentation and when we do that they accumulate more DNA damage so we can actually produce that result in the lab and and so we've been stuck at kind of those molecular questions and looking at what's going on inside the cell the lake is filled with bioresources some that are extracted by the tons every year understanding the ecosystem and keeping it healthy is key Great Salt Lake is a terminal lake, and so everything in the valley can end up settling in there. Baxter says she learned it has a memory. I just love that. I, I, it's, it's stuck with me that, that the lake has a memory of all the activities that have occurred in the valley because everything goes into the lake. So that can be a bad memory or a good memory, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the whole concept of Great Salt Lake Institute has been so interesting as we've been evolving and developing um, because we we take a real holistic view, which would include industry as well as environmental groups, as well as researchers and legislators and legislators and, uh, you know, everybody in the state and whoever has a connection to the lake, no matter how it is. And, and it's all in one big envelope, whether it's a good interaction or a bad interaction or a benign interaction, you know, so it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I see the lake in a different way now, I think, than I did a few years ago. With so many industries surrounding the lake that are extracting its resources, Baxter sees the ecosystem as a valuable economic source, but also one that needs thoughtful protection. There are um, a number of mineral extraction companies around the lake, and we don't make any table salt here. 
um, but Morton has a plant and um, Cargill and um, Great Salt Lake Minerals. Great Salt Lake Minerals is making potash for fertilizer. Morton and Cargill, they're making salts for things like water softeners. And there's uh, another plant, Intrepid, that's um, out near Tuella. Um, so different mineral extraction company, U.S. Magnesium's um, getting mag- you know, magnesium out of the lake, um, which is a, a product in steel. So the lake is supplying a lot of minerals for a lot of the things that we use. And there has to, of course, be a balance of that, right? How much extraction is too much? You know, what is a healthy amount of minerals to have in the lake? Because minerals are constantly flowing into the lake. So we've got to have a balance, right? You can't take too much out because otherwise you deplete the system. Um, so those are those are important questions, and I think that's where Great Salt Lake likes to facilitate discussion is, okay, so some is good because we use fertilizers and we use salts and we use steel. Everybody uses steel, right? So to say that we're going to suddenly have a lake that has no industry on it, I think, is a pipe dream, and it's an idealist perspective. So if you encompass the industry, then you need to work in harmony with the lake. And so that's one set of industries. Uh, the, the Artemia Association represents a number of brine shrimp companies, and they harvest the brine shrimp cysts, these encysted embryos, that then they deliver to uh, particularly prawn farming in, like, Southeast Asian countries or um, Thailand and other places that, that these are used to feed prawns as they're grown for, for culture, so for, for cultivation for food. So um, brine shrimp cysts are actually helping feed a lot of people in the world, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's an industry that, that people rely on, um, but it needs to be in harmony with the lake. And that is done through the Division of Wildlife Resources Great Salt Lake Ecosystem Project. They work together with the Artemia Association to decide when, when and where harvest will happen mm-hmm. and for how long. And So all of these issues are management issues that take place at the state level. One of the problems to pay close attention to is the amount of heavy metals in the lake. There is um, a severe mercury problem in Great Salt Lake, and certainly coal burning contributes to that, but where we think it's coming from is gold mining because mercury is a natural airborne byproduct, and so it's atmospheric deposition of mercury from, you know, nearby gold mining is the most likely example because you've got this huge body of water mm-hmm. um, and as the atmosphere you know that we share you know deposits mercury and it, it can interact with the lake in a chemical way to to make the mercury soluble and that mercury can get converted into an organic form that can be taken up by biology so the microbes can process it and create a more toxic form that then can move up the food chain. Another selenium is another issue. issue. Another big one. Yeah, and and the selenium issue um, was funded and looked at, and um, now we have a standard set for the lake of how much selenium is too much. Selenium is a point source in the lake because it's coming from tailings from copper mining. It's it's a point source for where that outflow is, whereas mercury is atmospheric deposition, so it's all over the lake but it's concentrated in this area near the causeway that we call the deep brine layer. There's a hypersalty okay. area that's underneath the the South Arm water um, that seems to be concentrating this mercury. So understanding that, where these issues are, where we take measurements, what is healthy, what is not healthy, 
that is the cool work. We'll actually have a set of parameters that we need to keep the lake in. Um, we've never had that before. Um, it's just so unique. It's so different that you can't use the standards that are set for freshwater where people fish and drink. Um, you have to create your own set of standards. It's a good time for the lake, I think. I think it's getting a lot of attention from a science perspective, and that's what we've been waiting for. That was Bonnie Baxter, professor of biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. Stay tuned for Science Questions. Up next, Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the frenzied uranium boom that swept southern Utah in the 1950s, as well as its continued legacy. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council, with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. On July 6, 1952, a down-on-his-luck uranium prospector named Charlie Steen made a major strike near Moab, Utah. His discovery led to a massive uranium boom on the Colorado Plateau, a boom that was to make Charlie very rich, but one that also cost many lives. Following World War II, uranium became a crucial commodity for the U.S. government. This radioactive ore fueled nuclear weapons, and to maintain its edge in the Cold War, the U.S. was desperate to develop its untapped supplies on the Colorado Plateau. The Atomic Energy Commission put out a call for prospectors, which caused the first federally sponsored mineral rush in history. Charlie Steen, an unemployed oil geologist from Texas, was among the many fortune hunters who descended on Red Rock Country in a frenzied search for uranium. Unlike his fellow prospectors, Steen used oil exploration techniques to locate uranium in a formation that had previously yielded no ore. Charlie Steen's Mivita mine was the nation's first big uranium strike and triggered further discoveries. By 1959, more than 300,000 claims were filed in Utah, and by 1962, Utah had produced 9 million tons of ore worth $25 million. The industry employed more than 8,000 workers, and the sleepy town of Moab was transformed into the uranium capital of the world. But there were downsides. Digging uranium was hazardous, and neither the mining companies nor the government took responsibility for health safety. Miners were generally ignorant of the dangers. Many came home to their families each night covered with radioactive dust. Navajo children near Bluff regularly played in the mines, and in the Navajo town of Halchita, even homes were built on mine tailings. The boom ended when the government stopped buying uranium in 1970, but its legacy continues. Hundreds of miners and their families succumbed to radiation, and court battles finally resulted in some compensation to victims in 1989. But cleanup of radioactive tailings continues to this day. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the law firm of Hilliard, Anderson, and Olson, with offices at the Riverwoods Business Complex in Logan at 600 South Main. In practice for more than 40 years, information is online at hao-law.com. 
Support for Science Questions is also provided by the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Science. Questions. Radio. Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Susie Montgomery. There isn't anyone in the United States that isn't a downwinder. Since 1951, more than 100 atomic bombs have detonated from the Nevada test site into the atmosphere, leaving a radioactive trail of white ashes and casualties of an undeclared war in its wake. The victims, known as downwinders, were treated as an inevitable side effect of the Cold War. The symptoms of these side effects proved to be grave. In collaboration with local artists, Utah State History, and City Academy Charter School, Higher Ground Learning, a creative learning center for youth and five teenagers, explored nuclear testing, power, and waste from the classroom and from their campout in the Utah West Desert, one of the area's hardest hit by the nuclear fallout. There, the teens explored the environment to feel the impact of this juxtaposition between the peaceful and serene desert and destruction caused by the storage of waste and nuclear bombs. Just because you don't live in southern Utah doesn't mean you can't get cancer from nuclear bombs. When Mary Dixon was 29, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and it came as a shock. Whenever you said downwinder, or you told people you were a downwinder, they'd say, oh, I didn't know you're from southern Utah. And I, I, at this point, when I hear that, I just want to pull my hair out. The desert is not dead. It is an important ecosystem that has a diversity of wildlife and a sustainable community that can serve as a model to other communities. The desert is filled with towering, jagged cliffs striped with bands of red and white rock. While in this canyon, desert partridges aren't afraid of people, even though people in the past did so much to destroy everything in this fragile environment. Nuclear physics is the study of the building blocks of atomic nuclei, the necessary ingredient for making nuclear weapons. To understand the effects of nuclear bombs on the environment and living beings, City Academy teens interviewed two physicists, Riva Griesner Servas and her husband William Servas. They are the parents of Sonia Woodbury, the founder and executive director of City Academy Charter School. Riva Griesner Servas was the first woman in the United States to graduate with a PhD in nuclear physics. She overcame tremendous odds to achieve such success. She grew up as a Jewish girl in Belgium. When World War II broke out, Riva was just 13, and to save her from the concentration camps, her parents sent her into hiding to a convent. Sadly, she never saw her parents again. After the war in 1948, she immigrated to New York to live with an aunt. From there, she went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Kansas. That's where she met her husband, William Servas. They moved to Texas for school and had a baby girl in Waco, Texas, named Sonia. Eventually, they ended up in Kansas City, where Riva got a job as a professor at Rockhurst College, a medium-sized Jesuit school. Oh, I, well, I was the first PhD woman chemist in those days because that school had been all a male school during the war years. And after the war, they decided to accept women. Now, how did I pick chemistry? I didn't know it because I didn't have all of the science in high school because it was the war years. I, I 
wasn't able to study. I walked into the class of chemistry and that's what I wanted to find out about and I stayed with it. I went into physics, I went into biology, but chemistry was the one that appealed to me. It was just like unraveling my imagination and I just loved it, I always have. teacher, I've always been a teacher. Even in grade school, they'd always say to me, go and explain this to another kid. And I've always wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't know what kind of teacher. Chemistry, I just fell in love with it right from the very first week that I walked into my first class of chemistry. Was it hard, difficult, uh, being the only woman? And were there challenges well, that way? It, it was, as I wasn't too bad when I was in school because they recognized that they became friends of mine. I mean, my teachers and us, we became very no, good friends. There were about like some 3,000 students. It was an engineering school. It's called RPI, and it's an engineering school. And in the chemistry department, there were no women. I was the first one. But my professor were very nice. I had some good professor. I had only one that didn't want women to be. But it's when I got out of school that it was very hard because they didn't accept women, scientists or chemists. It was almost impossible to find a job. So I went through some bad years. How did you eventually get the job? It was after the Sputnik. If you remember, everything started. They wanted to have more teachers in science. They had classes mushrooming with people who wanted to beat the Russians to their Sputnik, and, and science became important. So small schools began to hire women. If they could find any, they were qualified. Well, here I was with a degree, a PhD, and a qualification. So they hired me on a one-year level basis. And after a few years, they decided to keep me. It was an all-male school, and they resented to have a woman there first. It was very hard at first. And pretty soon, it got to be easier. But it was a, a battle. We were in the years where women were not paid the same. We never got the same salary that the man did. You could get fired very quickly. The slightest little thing. They, you know, and the compensation was not equal and not the same. And it was always that scared that because I was a woman, you know, they'll be watching you. They'll see how you're doing, you know. And so it was a little harder to move up to echelon at the levels. And I mean, it's and going out to find a job was very interesting. I had a lie that I was a woman until I walked in. And then I walked in, they said, oh, we weren't planning to hire a woman. <laughs> and I couldn't get the job. I couldn't get a chemistry job. Reva's determination paid off, and she was a physics professor for over 40 years at Rockhurst in Kansas. Retirement didn't stop her from her love of teaching, she explains. I've been retired quite a while now, but after I retired, I continued to work with a lot of high schools, uh, junior highs, uh, mostly with people who are behind on the need to retake their high school diploma. Or I would now, for example, I helped the people in Horizonte to get their uh, GED or finish up their high school degree. And since my background was in science, I had a lot of math, so I, 
I mostly help with math. <laughs> and actually, I have a pretty good background in nuclear chemistry, not engineering, but nuclear chemistry. And I taught a course, an introductory course, called Nuclear Science for the city of Kansas City and the area, for the universities there. So I have a pretty good background in nuclear science, okay. but not engineering, so this is where my shortfalls are. <laughs> Riva's husband, William Servas, is a chemist. He's retired now, but he worked in industry specializing in organic chemistry and toxicity. He defines organic chemistry. Organic, uh, the, the name referred to the fact that all of, at the beginning of the chemistry, all of the chemicals seem to come from living organisms. And so they called it organic chemistry. And uh, it wasn't until quite a while later that some famous guy developed an organic material in the laboratory that obviously had not come from a living thing. And so now it's, of course, it, it includes anything that's got the carbon uh, chain of uh, uh, molecule or atoms in it. And, uh, of course, all kinds of things, the polymers and detergents and everything, are, and plastics are all uh, uh, organic materials. And, of course, the drugs and medicine and uh, actually living things are chemicals, too. All of the, uh, the DNA has the chemical composition and so on. That, uh, they've been unraveling now for quite a while because those are really big molecules, but uh, there's any number of things you can point to that are really organic chemicals. Next, the group asks Riva to define nuclear, uranium, and plutonium. The word nucleus is the center of the atom. If you've studied an atom, there is a center that's called a nucleus. And then there are, around it are electrons that are surrounding it. Well, if you studied a nucleus, you're a nuclear scientist. And what when you talk about uranium or plutonium, you're talking about radioactive nucleus. Every atom has a nucleus. It doesn't have to be radioactive can be a stable nucleus. So if you study, physicists, for example, study nucleus, and not necessarily radioactive one, they can bombard them, they can study what's the inside of a nucleus. <clears throat> so nuclear would be the study of the nuclei of atoms. Now, if you talk about radioactivity, you're talking about very special nuclei, the kind that are not stable. There are stable ones and there are unstable ones. And almost any element can be made radioactive by man today, almost any one. Some of them are already radioactive in nature. Uranium is one of those. So the periodic chart, if you've studied a periodic chart, there is a point where you come out and you no longer have stable ones. And that's around bismuth and lead. I don't know if you know your periodic chart, but when you get to a certain point when they're heavy enough, they're no longer stable ones. They're all radioactive. They're all unstable. 
So where do those lie on the chart? They are still on the chart, but you have to know it if you study the atoms. You know up to a certain point, there is at least one stable nucleus. But down in the chart. Oh, yeah, they're way down at the bottom of the last okay. line on the periodic chart. So if you know lead, which is pretty heavy, a pretty high atomic number, that's around that area where they begin to be, to be non-stable. But any atom can be made unstable by artificial means, by man can do that. They can create unstable. So is the word unstable synonymous with radioactive? Unstable means it will be radioactive. Yes. That means it, it emits radiation. Because if it's unstable, it wants to become stable. Nothing unstable remains in, in that's why it will become, it tries to become stable by emitting radiation by transforming, the nucleus transforms. And it emits radiation. Does that sound clear? I mean, if, it, if you're sitting on the top of a hill and, and you can fall off the hill where you're, you're unstable and you try to go down to the bottom of the valley, you're stable. So any element that's unstable wants to become stable by transforming itself. It's this transformation of the nucleus that it emits, ejects radiation and different kinds of radiation. Okay, now not to be confused with fission, which is a different process. Radioactive fallout from nuclear testing not only affected vast swaths of dry desert lands, it also went into the ocean. When they did testing in the Gulf, um, how did it affect the sea life? Do you know? We know a lot more about the testing that was done above ground because we know the plumes of the radioactivity, where they went through. We could measure it in the, as they came down, where they came down. We could measure what was coming down. Once you test in the water, we did not have, at least I have not seen anything in the water specifically. Uh, at least I'm sorry about that. We're still getting now a little bit of the fallout of what they did in the upper atmosphere. It still, it went above our region and it's slowly still coming down. Not as much as it, at first, of course, it's very little now. But there's still fallout from the explosions that were done above the atmosphere. I have a quick question following up with Dallin. So if someone was to eat fish and there was obviously radioactivity that went into the water from these above ground bombs, right? It, the fallout would go over the ocean and things like that. So would that be able to be monitored in people's bodies once they ate this fish or ate animals? Would it transfer into a human body? And For example, after the fallout of the Chernobyl or even others, matter of fact, after World War II, uh, they could, they could find radioactivity in the breast milk in San Francisco, for example, and they did on the expected mother had they just had a child, and she had radioactivity in her, in her breast milk, for example. From Chernobyl? No, no I wasn't oh. from Chernobyl. I said from Chernobyl, of course, we, we know that that has already occurred in a lot of the, some of the fish that were picked out in the ocean there and some of the cows that were grazing the grass, the milk was radioactive. 
radioactive elements are elements, just like regular elements. So they'll go where the chemistry goes. Strontium, for example, will go is where calcium goes, and you know calcium goes in your teeth, in your breast milk, in your milk, and in, in the bones. So the chemistry is the same as the element that's not radioactive. So all you have to know is which is the element that's coming down, and it'll go exactly in your body where the regular uh, element will go. So for calcium is a good one because we have a lot of calcium in our body. So if you have a radioactive material that's going where calcium goes, it'll go in the body wherever that goes. So yes, if it's coming from fish, there were radioactive fish then. And I say it'll go on the grass, so the cows will eat the grass, and then that will go with the body. So, but yes, it'll go anywhere. It goes in the soil, in the plants, in the animals. It'll go, obviously, it goes in the fish, sure. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing, the bigger the fish, the more it'll have radioactivity because it eats a lot of little ones. You know, so the plankton, for example, will be very small and have very little radioactivity. But if you eat thousands of them, then it, it gets into your stomach and you're eating what thousands of the little fish would have been. So the bigger the fish, the more radioactive it can be. It accumulates into the bigger fish. Um, do you know what happened to the scientists that actually built the bomb? Well, some of them died pretty old and some died young. Those, some of them got exposed and died young, and some lived pretty long. Yeah, there's a, a lot of history about who is it. But there are workers who worked in plants who did get radiation sicknesses by accidents. They were very careful. But that's the problem of radi radiation. Let's say I could get a dosage now. Let's say we put something in the middle of this floor here, and we would all get a radiation dosage, a, a reasonable one. And next week, next month, next year, nothing will affect us and we'll say nothing wrong with it. In 10, 15 years, I suddenly get cancer. How could you tell it's exactly that radiation dosage out there? But it's funny because everybody in the same room would have gotten this radiation dosage 10, 15, 20 years from now. That's called a somatic effect. You would die off of cancer. Or something else could happen. Nothing happened to me, but I give birth to a, a child that's defective. That's called a mut mutation effect of radiation. And that's the difficulty about low-level radiation. High level, you know it right away. You get sick, and within a few weeks you die for high-level radiation dosage. But low-level radiation dosage, it breaks up the cell, and, and one or two cells broken can repair themselves. It's when you get too many of these cells that either go awry, that's cancer, or they, they just can't reform anymore, so you have problems in that location. So what's dangerous about many radiation, radioactive materials is if you swallow them or if you inhale them. If you inhale them, they go in your lung and they sit there and slowly corrode away your lung, and it's over time. And that's the kind of somatic effect you get. You suddenly get lung cancer. Or it can be swallowed and you can get it in the stomach and the blood system.
it's really several variety of radiation. There is alpha, beta, and gamma that comes off. Well, the gamma is like x-rays. So that goes through your body and it, and it affects as it's coming through. But alpha and beta don't go through. They just go in and locate themselves where they land. So if they land in your, in your stomach, it's your stomach that gets affected. If they land in your, where there's a blood vessel, it'll go in with your blood vessel. If it, la it lands in your lungs, it'll affect it at the lung position, and they're extremely dangerous. But if they are maintained in a concrete shield, they don't go through the shield. So there's different kind of radiation, and you got to worry about what kind we're talking about. They're not all the same. I was down in Lake Powell about three years ago, and I swam in the water, and I was just wondering, would there still be radioactivity in the water after all these years? I'm, I'm sure that in Lake Powell, whatever little bit there was is probably in the muds in the bottom of the Lake Powell, not in the water, dissolved in the water. If there is, it's extremely small. But if the mud on the bottom gets churned up or if the water level would go down, I don't know what's there. I don't think anyone has really studied that. But just going and swimming in the water, I don't think you'd get much radiation. Certainly not even as much as an x-ray on your teeth or something. Right. I would guess that. Because it would have to be something that's dissolved in the water and it's dispersed. The level is pretty big. There's a lot of water there. So even if there is a little bit, it'd be pretty small. Unless there was a major plume that came and landed in one location, you might get that location, might be worse. You might get more from the rocks if you're not far from the, some of the mining where they were mining the uranium rocks. You may get a higher level from the rocks than you would from the water. You could be laying on that against a rock that happens to have uranium and you would get a bigger dosage than you would from the water. But if they explode any bomb, we have to be very watchful on that because there's plumes that come with the air current, and it's a narrow plume that comes along. And you could be under it and get it when it rains. Okay, so what level of radiation do you think people are exposed to right now as far as numbers go? First of all, there's natural exposure. I don't know if you're aware of the cosmic rays from the atmosphere coming in, and that's normal, natural exposure. Then you have, in your body, you have a radioactive element that's in your body, and you get that kind of radiation exposure all the time. That's part of natural exposure. The uranium rocks, I was telling, if you live where there's, um, there are certain sections in Utah, they have uranium mining. There's uranium in a rock, so you get that. So there is what's called a normal natural exposure of radioactivity that we didn't even know that before radioactivity was ever discovered. We are getting that, and we're getting cosmic rays exposure all the time. Okay, that's natural. Then there's things that we're adding, like x-rays of your body, x-rays of your teeth, any kind of additional. If you have cancer, you get treatment from radioactive material. For example, cobalt-60 is a well-known one. It's used for trying to kill the cancerous cells. So what you do is, let's say this is a cancerous cell. They try to beam 
the radiation to come here, and it's like a very powerful X-ray. It's like a thousand times more powerful than X-ray, and it'll be, destroy that cancerous cell. So we have all kinds of materials that we fabricate on purpose for medical purposes. And then some people get injected radioactive isotopes. They have very short half-lives. And so the, you get them injected, then you follow them, and you can find, for example, you might have a tumor in the brain, or you might have a tumor someplace, and it find it by tracing it. They can take pictures of the brain or the pictures of the place where they think there's maybe a tumor, and they can find it real quick. So we have medical exposure now of that. Then let's see, where else do we use? Oh, we use radiation sometimes to to kill bacteria when we package food. Research, of course. If you're doing research, you put, a, uh, like I did when I did my master's, I did research. So you you have a container, you know, are you familiar with a beaker? You have a beaker of a solution in the beaker. Okay, so you put a little bit of the radioactive sample in there, stir it up, and it'll be all over the beaker. Then you take a sample and put it under an, an instrument, and you can tell where it's going, what it's doing. So you, we use a lot of research. And to trace sickness and illnesses, we do research. So there's a lot of radioactive material used in research. That's for the good of man. Then now we are also exposed with all the residues from all the bombs that we made. And that is the bad part, is that there are places in this country where we still have left over all those solutions and solids of while we were making the bombs, where we were making them for many years, we made quite a few bombs. We reprocessed all that. We have all of those residues. We don't know what to do with all those residues. So there are locations in this country where we have so much pileup of residues that are terribly radioactive, but very high radioactive, not just little bits, very dangerous. Some of those containers are corroding, some of them are leaking, and we're leaking it into underground water. So we don't know how exposure we get. We don't know, if you, you know, you're asking a good question, but it depends where you are located, where you live, how far you are from one of those uh, well, right now we're talking about uh, Class A in Tuella. If they had accepted the ones we were fighting not to accept, we would have been getting pretty high exposures. As the students asked more questions, a theme emerged. They were concerned about health, the health of the planet, and particularly the animals. What happens to your body when you get exposed to radioactivity? Like what okay, does the It affects immediately those cells that are procreating fastest ones. That's why it's the most dangerous for babies because their cells are growing fast. So the ones that, cells that, that grow the fastest or that change the fastest are the ones that are most affected. That's why stomach lining, usually you get vomiting, stomach sickness, you lose your hair, 
is the kind of a cell that, that's the immediate recognition if somebody got an exposure. The fastest growing, the fastest replacement are the ones that are affected quickly, fastest. Skin, for example, will not be affected as much. Let's say you get a, a dosage that lands on your uh, alpha or beta that lands on the skin. It might give a little burn effect, but be, because those cells are almost very little regenerative. Remediation, would that create like a, a skin cancer? If you really had a lot of it, yes. If you had a, a major fallout all the way across, you could. But usually it'll be a burn. If it's just a small amount, it'll be like a burn. How much like radiation is it in about like, say, nine x-rays in two years? And so the radiation that they need to get an image nowadays is much less than they used to have. I'm sure that when I got my first x-ray, tooth x-rays, years ago, I got a pretty good dose compared to what we're getting now. It's really fast now. And if you notice, they always go behind the shield. Did you notice they don't stay in the room? Okay, because, see, I get it once a year. That's not a problem. They get it all the time, the whole day. See, it's this accumulation that is very bad. And as a matter of fact, I know x-ray technicians who died from because they gave them too many and they were stating in the room they didn't know it. We didn't know it. We're learning, you know, we've learned a lot. So now they're not allowed to. And did you notice also the lead shield that they put a lead apron? The lead will stop the x-ray. I heard that um, radi radiation gets concentrated in the mother and can get passed down to kids. Is that true? So we're talking about now of half-life, and that's a very important factor. Nobody asked about that. A half-life is the length of time. Whatever you started with goes down to one half of what it started. So if you have a half-life of, let's say, 100 years, you see, I'm a mother and I got something in me. In 100 years, half of what I took in would be gone. But in the meantime, I have nursed how many of my children, and they have gotten it through me, through my milk. So, yes, you're sure it can be passed on if it's something, you know, that can be passed on. And of course, if you got the radiation before it was born, sure. That's why they get mutations sometimes in the offspring. I know for a fact that there was some, well, we know that from the bomb that exploded in Japan that some of the children that were born mutated with real bad defects and problems. Mm -hmm. My cousin had an unknown sickness that um, they couldn't decide what it was. I was just wondering maybe could that be, have to deal with nuclear testing because um, my aunt didn't have any radioactivity or anything like that in her and she got it about three months after she was born. When she was born they lived here but I think she was born down in southern Utah, so. Well, in southern Utah, a lot of people got a lot of radi radioactive material, so it could have been a mutation in the baby that caused the death. It can, but I couldn't guarantee you that nobody can. As a matter of fact, it took quite a few years before the federal government decided to compensate those who they were known to have been exposed. Just recently, that we've been compensating some of these people who died from the radioactive exposure. Yeah, my they just wouldn't even accept it. They lied, actually, to a lot of the people, but they also didn't know. 
They had to kill off all of the animals that were grazing around at Chernobyl. They had to kill them off because it was just totally radioactive. First of all, if the radioactivity goes up but doesn't go high and it comes down, okay? So we're talking about now the whole, the whole body of radioactive samples will come down on the soil, on the houses, on the people that are down there, okay? How long will it stay will depend on their half-life. Some of them are gone within a month. They have very short half-lives. And some of them are there for billions of years. We still have in the desert now residues from the fallout from the bomb that were exploded because they have long half-lives. But there's maybe very little of it or a lot. That's the difficulty. How much is there depends on quantities exploded, quantities of fallout. First one it was, was uh, done on Japan was an uranium bomb. The second bomb was a hydrogen bomb, which is a different bomb. Then we have had plutonium bombs. So we have all kinds of bombs, but it doesn't matter because you produce radioactive material that is extremely dangerous, extremely high. And the long half-lives are around for hundreds and thousands and millions of years. I mean, you can't do anything about it. That's why we have so much trouble knowing what to do with the power reactor, fuel spent, some of those half-lives are billions of years. That's why we don't know where to put them. This the yucca plant is what we had thought we were going to do. We were going to bury them inside the mountain, but now they don't want them there because they discovered that they didn't study it right, they lied. They, they also think that there's an earthquake line that comes along there and they're afraid and the they're afraid that there's more water than what they thought there would be there. They can't have any water where you put them because they could leach out. They can, I mean, how do you expect to be sure that in 500 years, for example, it'll be the same as today? Have you ever seen a pipe that gets corroded? What are you going to bury it in? Well, now we're talking about billions of years, not 500 years. So They talked about sending it into space at all? Yes, they have. As a matter of fact, I was a part of a study that was done in KU at Kansas University in the early 80s before they had decided they had all of these possibilities. They looked at putting them in the ocean. They decided, no, that wouldn't work because they were afraid of getting corroded in the water, the salt water especially, and then the fish would eat it and you can see what would happen. Uh, then they talked about sending them to the sun they thought, hey, fission reaction, you know, fusion reaction, we'll just send them into the sun. But what happens if you have a problem with the rocket? Remember the people who died from the rocket failure? What if it explodes in the midair and comes right back on Earth? We'll have all that radioactivity coming down all over the Earth. I mean, so that got taken out pretty quick. They talked about burying it into the mountain. That was about, so they thought, they looked at salt mines that were, because salt mines means that if there was salt, there was no water. So if you can find a, a dry location, we could bury it there. So they looked at all kinds of things. 
So I just want to leave you with to think about that half-life because it isn't a very important factor, but it's extremely important when you talk about radioactivity. How long do you have to wait until half of that material is gone? Half of it. Like if it's a half-life of 20 years, and, and let's say I'm starting with a 1,000 unit, in 20 years I'll get down to 500. In then another 20 years, which would be 40 years, it would be down to 250. And I have to wait another half-life. So to get down a half every time, you gotta wait to the half-life. So imagine if you have a half-life of a thousand years or 10,000 years or 100,000 years. How long can you keep them was safe? Scientists like myself hope that if you wait long enough, we'll, we'll figure out a way of killing those materials that are so hot and so bad. And there is probably some someday they'll figure it out. They could bombard them with something real strong, where it's powerful. When we can do laser beams that are powerful enough, maybe we can destroy them, bring them down to instead of 100,000 years half-life, they would only have a few hundred years half-life. But you'd have to keep them safe somewhere until that discovery will be done. That's kind of one of my hopes as I'm getting on the end of my life. I would love to see them just put somewhere safely for a while until we discover. But let's put our money, instead of building bombs, to study methods of getting rid of these materials, to bring down their half-lives, to destroy them somehow. And I think they'll be done someday. But not soon if we don't spend any money on it. That was Riva Griesner-Servas with her husband, William Servas. This youth documentary program, combining radio and activism, brought important personal testimonies to Utah Airwaves to shed light on an issue that still plagues the U.S. This project was made possible by Sonia Woodbury. Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com.